Well, hey, I don't know if you know this, but the punctuation mark right there. Sweet. I don't know if you know this, but this, um, this uh, all of a sudden Ohio winter that we've received, because it snuck up on us. I mean, we were blessed. I had brought half of Oregon with me, and then all of a sudden Ohio came and said, no, no, no. I don't know if you know this, though, but uh, there are a number of churches in our community that um, they have a very special, interesting problem right now with winter setting in. I don't know if you know this, but several of our churches in the community, the squirrels in their, in their neighborhood have been forced inside the church with this, with this winter. Have you, have you heard this? You haven't heard this? Yeah, the squirrels have been forced inside the church because of how much snow we've been receiving, how cold it's been, bitterly cold. Um, thankfully, I, I will report to you that, um, that I, being from Oregon, I'm quite familiar with squirrels. In fact, I exercised some squirrels from my home in South Dakota at one point. So I have prevented the squirrels from infesting our church. But the, the Presbyterian church, um, they've had a problem with squirrels, and so they called a meeting, and they decided uh, that they needed to do something about the squirrel infestation. So after much prayer and consideration, they concluded that the squirrels were predestined to be part of their church, and so they would not interfere with God's divine will. But down at the Baptist church, um, they came up with an interesting idea because they got infested by squirrels as well, and the squirrels seemed to take an interest to their baptistry. They, they loved the baptistry, and so the, the, the deacons of the Baptist church, they decided that they'd fill the baptistry and they'd build a water slide, hoping that the squirrels would slide down the water slide into the water and drown. But they did not, they, they weren't prepared for the fact that squirrels can naturally swim. And so they have had a ball since the Baptists have filled the baptistry. In fact, the squirrels have doubled in size since they built the water slide. Now, the Lutheran church, they decided that they were not in a position to harm the squirrels in any way because they're part of God's creation, right? So they humanely trapped the squirrels. And in the dead of night, they set them free in front of the Baptist church, who then discovered the other squirrels and the water slide, and they were having a ball until the Baptists got a little tired of that, and so they took down the water slide, drained the baptismal, and now those squirrels that left the Lutheran church are back at the Lutheran church. Now the Episcopalians, they tried a much more unique path by setting out pans of, believe it or not, whiskey around the church thinking that the squirrels would drink the whiskey and it would kill them. But sadly, they've discovered how much damage a band of drunk squirrels can do to a church. Now, the Catholics, they, they had an interesting thought. They, they thought the best way to, uh, to deal with their squirrel infestation was to, to invite them all in, to baptize them, make them members, and since they did that, they haven't seen a squirrel since Christmas and they don't think they'll see them again until Easter. Now, little has been heard of the Jewish synagogue because apparently they took the first squirrel in, circumcised him, and they haven't seen a squirrel since. Again, I have prevented a squirrel infestation here at ECCN. And I only tell you that just to lighten the mood a little bit, but also to... To, to help you see that, you know, there's a lot of other denominations out there. Um, there's other faiths. 
And part of what I like to do in, in, in the process of like teaching a church membership class or helping people understand who we are as Nazarenes is to give you an opportunity to see who we are compared to others. And so I'm not going to break any of that down today. I may later. But if you are interested in how we stack up against other faiths, other denominations, other religions, I do have a couple of books, and I would invite you to just approach me and borrow one of them. One of them is called The Handbook of Denominations in the United States. And this book will kind of outline pretty much every denomination that you'll find in our country. Um, you'll also see some information about other faiths and other religions. It doesn't specifically compare us, uh, compare us to them, but it's a great resource. So if you're interested in borrowing that, you can borrow that. I have a couple copies. And then the, the second book, which is the one that I think is the, the most important to kind of look at in regards to who we are as Nazarenes and who others are in their faith, is we have a book uh, that our denomination put out that's called Here We Stand, Where Nazarenes Fit in the Religious Marketplace. And so if you're interested in either one of these, um, you can borrow them from me and, um, and just take a look and bring them back. I think they're very helpful for those who have come to faith in Christ and maybe they grew up Catholic or they have Mormons or um, they have Seventh-day Adventists in their family and they'd like to just kind of see where we stack up against other denominations. And so if you're interested, just see me after church. And I'd love to send one of those home with you. Uh, cool, my first slide is up here. So hey, we're in this series, uh, A Church for You, and last week we, we started out by looking at how, who we are as, as the Church of the Nazarene, how we're structured, and we discovered that we have three kind of main core values, mission statements, and those are simply we are Christian, we want to identify ourselves as closely and as intimately and as deeply with Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, as much as possible. In fact, that's why we're called Nazarenes. Um, a lot of times people are like, Nazarenes, what is that? Is that a cult? I mean, are you Christian? No. If you read your Bible, you'll discover that Jesus happened to come from a place called Nazareth, and so he was called the Nazarene. And so we wanted to as closely identify us with, with Jesus as possible, so we took the name Nazarenes. We're also holiness. We're a holiness church. In fact, I shared with you last week that we are the largest Wesleyan holiness denomination in the world. And Holiness simply means that we believe that God called us to be set apart from the world, that we're to be in the world but not of the world, and that we can, we are called to live a holy life, that we can, we can live separate from the world's perils. We can live separate from sin. We can, we can conquer sin in our lives once and for all through the power of God working and living us, in us. And then we also uh, are, are a church that is missional, meaning that we believe that it is important for us to take the gospel to every inch of the world. Um, I, I shared with you that we're in a bunch of world areas. I'm going to highlight that again here in a minute. Um, in fact, if you, if you were with us last week, you, you, you understand that we're worldwide, that we have 30,875 churches to this point all around the world, that we have you know, over 2.6 million members, that we're in 164 er, uh, world areas separated into six world regions. So we are a large group of people. I think it's really cool to understand and to find out, to discover that our small group of people here is part of a larger, much greater church family. We also looked last week at kind of how we're structured as a church, and so we are the Church of the Nazarene. So we're part of a global Wesleyan church. 
We're part of a district church as well. We're part of the North Central Ohio District of the Church of the Nazarene. So um, a bunch of churches in North Central Ohio are grouped together. Ohio actually has five different districts. Um, uh, so in fact, I think Ohio might be one of the states, one of the only states that has that many districts. It's pretty crazy. And then we are obviously Elyria Community Church of the Nazarene. And in that, we looked at how we're structured governmentally. We know that the general church is above us and is there to support us and we support it. And that's where kind of our polity and our uh, policies and those kind of things come down. The district church is there to help uh, equip the local church to be all it can be in its local community, to help people who are called into full-time ministry achieve the call of God in their lives to, be called, to become full-time, pastor, full-time pastors or ministers. And then as a local church, we're here to help people in our communities discover God, discover Christ. And in that, as a local church, we have the ability to call our own pastors, set our own budgets, yet we're a part of a much larger group. So we are part of a really cool church family. Now, before we jump into our articles of faith today, I want to share a pretty lengthy piece of scripture with you because I want to set the tone for what we're going to talk about today. What we're going to talk about today is what we believe about God based on who he is and what he's done in our lives. And so if you have your Bibles with you, would you, uh, would you turn to Romans chapter 8? Romans chapter 8. I want to read to you um, the bulk of this chapter, uh, and I want to just kind of highlight a few things, and then we're going to jump into uh, what we call our articles of faith. Romans chapter 8. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1, and I'm reading from the New Inter- International Version today. Here we go. It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is such a a good word. That is such good news for all of us. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. See, as, as Wesleyans, as Nazarenes, we believe that God can set us free from sin and death. Verse 3 says, For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. I want to pause for just a second here. It says, for what the law was powerless to do. Now, when when we read this, what, what Paul is saying is that the law, so do you remember in the Old Testament, God gave us the Ten Commandments? And he told us this was how we were supposed to live. And guess what happened? After God gave the nation of Israel the Ten Commandments, they began to live a a continuous cycle of walking away from God and returning. And walking away from God and returning. And in the midst of their, their dysfunctional relationship with God, they decided that they needed to take God's Ten Commandments and add a bunch of other laws. In fact, they come up with like 600 and some other laws. And they're just crazy. Some of them are crazy. Some of them are like, you can't plow on the Sabbath. Can't go out and plow. But they also thought that if you moved your chair on a dirt floor, that it could be deemed plowing, and therefore you would have desecrated the Sabbath. I mean, they just they spent all this time creating all of these laws, trying to keep themselves in relationship with God, and they never could figure it out. And what those laws became were absolutely powerless in connecting them with a living God. It was kind of crazy how they operated 
in their history. Verse 4 says, In order that the righteous requirement of law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Meaning that if you are in Christ, we don't live by the flesh anymore. We live in the Spirit of God. Verse 5 says, Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. And I want to stop here for a second because this sounds a little bit harsh. It sounds as if Paul's being a little harsh here. And he's not really being harsh. He's just speaking the truth in love. Because what he's saying is that if you don't live by the Spirit of God and you're driven by your flesh, you are like a vast majority of people who kind of figure that they can live life the way they want with no higher power authority, with no relationship with the God who created them, who gives them this perfect way of living if we just would simply be obedient to Him. So and sometimes we, we look at those outside of the church who are living in the flesh or even some that might be in the church who are living in the flesh, and we look with eyes of kind of condemnation on them, and we shouldn't, because we have this greatest thing. We have, this, we have the gospel truth that we get to share with people, which means if we can convince someone to believe in the gospel truth, that they are now not condemned, so why in the world would we have a, condemn, a condemning like stare or look or perspective on anyone when all we have to do to get them from condemnation to freedom is introduce them to Jesus, right? Right? Go. Verse 6 says that the mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. There's such a contrast between the two. Verse 7, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. Again, that would, that would kind of drum up some kind of emotion in us Christ followers that like if you're, if you're living in the flesh, that means you're hostile to God, so that means you're hostile to who I love and who gives me this hope. And I think it, we need to be careful as Christians that we don't look at those that don't yet believe as hostile. They're hostile to God because they just don't know the true nature of God. They're opposed to Him because they don't know how He loves them. They don't know how He created them. They don't know how He forgives them. See, there's a big difference, right? Hostility doesn't always have to be flames and pitchforks. It can just be out of rhythm, out of harmony with who He is. It does not submit to God's law, nor it can, nor can it do so. See, there's, a, there's this there's this spiritual connection that helps the mind understand that God's ways are higher than ours. And when you know that, we have a, a different bent towards Him where when you're not, you just have this, di- this bent against Him. It says that those who are in the realm of the flesh, they cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but you are in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you and if anyone does not have the Spirit of God the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. And this simply connects us to that, 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 that piece of Scripture that says that the only way to the Father is through Christ, is through Jesus. The, the, he's the way and the truth and the life, and if you don't go through Him, you don't get to the Father. Verse 10, But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death, because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give you life, give life to your mortal bodies because 
of His Spirit who lives in you. And this is where we get the thought process that if the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, I mean, dead and buried Jesus, got up and walked out of the tomb three days later, if the same power that raised Him lives in you and me, then that means we can create, we can, we can, we can defeat death in our lives too. Not mortal death. We're, we're going to pass from this life to the next. But the things that kill us in this life, sin, jealousy, greed, anger, adultery, lust, all those things, we can defeat them. That's why we believe we are a holiness church. We can have victory over sin in our lives. Verse 12 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit who received does not make the, the spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship, which is this beautiful concept. Have you ever heard of that? The, the word adoption in church before? That we are all apart from God, from the sin of Adam and Eve, and when we accept Christ as our Savior, we are now adopted back into the family of God. And so, regardless of whether you like everyone in this room, you got to live with us because we're your brothers and sisters. And what? And love us. And love us. Some people are harder to love than others. Verse 16, or, or this says, in verse 15, it says, The spirit you receive does not make you slaves, so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. And I want to pause here, and I want to share with you our articles of faith. But before we go there, I want, to, I want to highlight for you that if you are adopted into the family of God, you are heirs in His kingdom. Which means that when we look at these articles of faith and we look at exactly what God desires of us, that we inherited these. These are possessions that we now have because of our relationship with Him. And they're important. They're important because do you guys know what an article of faith is? Do you know what that means? An article of faith is simply this. It is a firmly held belief. It's a fundamental belief. It's a, what's called a tenet, also called an article of belief, meaning that it is every faith organization should have a... If, if, in, in fact, if you ever, if you ever look to, to jump into a different faith organization, you should... You should always be able to discover what their articles of faith are. Because our, their articles of faith are their kind of their, their, their non-negotiable points of belief. It's the things that as a group they have collectively agreed upon. We believe in these things and we're not going to depart from them. And if for some reason we change or tweak them, in fact in our church what we would do if there was an article of faith that we felt needed adjusting, which I can't remember the last time it's never, it's not, my, I think, in my lifetime 
that we've adjusted an article of faith. That's where that general church, the, the, the overreaching church of the Nazarene, would work collectively. 2.6 million members, elected delegates and ordained uh, elders and deacons would come together to make a change on that scale. But these are our kind of undeniables. This is what we believe, and we're going to stand upon that. Now, next week, we're going to look at what we call the Code of Christian Conduct, which are some other things that are specifically about who we are as Nazarenes, about what we, how we're supposed to behave and how we're supposed to relate and, and interact in the world that God has placed us in. So let's jump into the articles of faith, our beliefs. In our church, we have 16 articles of faith. So the Church of the Nazarene, number one, we believe in one God, the creator of all things, who reveals himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we believe in one God who reveals himself in three ways, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Number two, we believe in Jesus Christ, who is both fully God and fully man at the same time, meaning that God, that Jesus when he came from heaven to be on earth with us, he set aside his deity to become a man, to walk in the flesh so that we could, we, could, we could relate to him in his sufferings, that everything that he experienced as a man, we could relate to as well. And that, that through Christ, he became our salvation because he took the penalty for our sin. What we could not do on our own, Jesus did. Number three, we believe in the Holy Spirit who is active in the world and is what God uses to bring us to salvation. Which, essentially, the Holy Spirit working in the world is what another word that we use, in the uh, phrase that we use in the church of the Nazarene, which is called prevenient grace. That God is always working in advance. So we believe in one God revealed in the three persons of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Here's a couple of pictures that kind of help us uh, kind of grasp this. Because in all honesty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three people, one God, it's really, it can get, in fact, when my father-in-law was coming to faith, this was the biggest thing he struggled with. He just couldn't wrap his brain around this. So let me give you just a couple of quick pictures. Uh, and oh, let me back up just a second. I also am going to preach a series, probably kind of coming right out of this, where I break down each one of these articles of faith in a message. And so uh, I'm going to highlight them today. I'm not going to go tremendously deep, uh, but stay tuned. We'll break these down in a sermon series a little bit later. So when we look at Father, when we look at God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, three persons. Additionally, when we look at the Trinity, one God, three persons, and they each serve a different purpose. So as you can see, the Father is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father, but God is the Son, and God is the Father, and God is the Holy Spirit. When we get to the end of my message today, we're going to jump back into Romans, and I'm going to reconnect the dots to this, okay? Why am I there? I went backwards. Wow, I'm all over the place. What happened here? There we go. There we go. All right. Article of faith number four. We believe that the Word of God is, uh, that the Bible is the Word of God giving us all we need to know how to be saved. 
We believe it's inerrant. We believe that the Word of God uh, doesn't need to be added to or subtracted from. We believe it's complete, uh, and we're comfortable with that. Number five, we believe that we are all sinners, both by nature and act, and that we need God's forgiveness and cleansing from our sin. And we define sin two ways. And this is a little bit unique to our church, but there are others, other denominations that approach sin the same way. We believe that there are two, two forms of sin, original sin and personal sin. Now, original sin is that sin that we were born into, Adam and Eve, the fall. That's original sin. And then once you become a Christian, once you ask Christ for forgiveness of your sins and he forgives you, the original sin has been taken care of for you. But moving forward in life, any sin you would commit after you've entered into a relationship with Jesus is what we call personal sin, which essentially means stepping outside of a known will and way of God. So um, it's, it's kind of like when you tell your children, okay, I just bake cookies. You can go get a plate and you can have three cookies, but no more. No more than three cookies. And they go and they get their plate and they put three cookies on the plate. And they eat their three cookies. But then they go back for a fourth or a fifth. They know that the fourth and the fifth are against the law that has been set down. They know that because they have the knowledge now that they can't eat the whole batch of cookies. Okay? So original sin is that which we were born with. Personal sin is I am in Christ, and God says this is how I want you to live, and you know that that's how God wants you to live, but you choose to step outside of that anyways. That's what we refer to as personal sin. We believe as Church of the Nazarene that you can live a holy life where you can be separate from, you can, you can rise above that personal sin in your life, have victory over it, finally. Number six, we believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross and that by trusting in Him and in His death and His resurrection, that we can be restored into right relationship with God. Meaning that from Adam and Eve's fall, a separation was created between us and God. And the only way to return into a right relationship with God is for Jesus to become our Savior by us connecting to His life, death, and resurrection. Believing in Him for our forgiveness, thus making us back in a right relationship with God. Here's number seven. I mentioned this a few minutes ago. We believe in prevenient grace, meaning that God works in advance of us. And for those of you who are, who are in Christ, you know, you can, you can look back on your past and go, wow, I can see now how, you don't see it when you're in it, but you see it after the fact. When you finally discover who God is, you're in a relationship with Jesus, you recognize how God was working in your life beforehand to draw you to him. We believe that God has, uh, and additionally, we believe that every single one of us, because we're created by him and we're born in the image of God, that we have this inward pull. So this prevenient grace is this inward pull and that is God working in advance of us to draw us to salvation, which is really good news because as long as there's prevenient grace in this world, no one is too far from God and no one is lost. I mean, they've been wandering around in the desert they might be out in the woods somewhere, but 
God's prevenient grace is always there working to pull them. And even at the moment of, 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 as they take their last breath, they confess that Jesus is Lord. They'll end up in heaven with him. That was one of the things I struggled with more than anything. I remember before, a few months before I became a Christian, I was riding with this guy. I, I was a utility driver for Aramark, and I was riding along to learn a guy's route so I could do his route for him uh, when he went on vacation. His name was Tom, and he was a Bible thumper. He was a believer, but a thumper. I mean, you rode with Tom for a week to learn his route. He was hitting you over the head with his Bible the whole week long. And he and I argued because I was cynical. I was cynical, and I was opposed to, and I was against God. And he kept telling me this. He kept telling me, it doesn't matter how far you are. It doesn't matter what you did last night. And here, I thought I could throw the one thing to him. I thought I could give him the one thing that there's no way he could tell me that God would have. I said, what about Charles Manson? I said, you're telling me that Charles Manson on his deathbed could confess that Jesus is Lord and that he'd get to go to heaven. And Tom said, yep, absolutely. And that was, my, that was the one thing, that was the, thing I, that was the trump card I threw up that I thought there's no way possible. Guess what? The God I know would take him to heaven if he confessed with his mouth and believed in his heart that Jesus was Lord because no one is too far from God. Number eight, we believe in repentance, that each person must repent and turn from sin and trust Christ to accept him. And here's what this means. Every single one, it's not enough to just believe that Jesus lived and died and rose again and will forgive you of your sin. You have to turn from that sin and start moving in the other direction. There is no salvation without repentance. And I don't know how many people I have had conversations with that believe that they can be saved without repentance. And they can't. You're not saved unless you turn from your sin. Because that's discounting the fact that Jesus can defeat the sin. Right? And so repentance is a key and we believe that. Whoops, let me back up. I forgot where I was at. So we're going to do this. I'm going to go back in a second. I forgot to tell you, you guys get bonus today, some bonus stuff, because I have three videos that I want to show you. Uh, in each one of these videos, we're going to, another pastor, another leader from our church is going to give you a little bit of a deeper understanding. And before I back up and show you that video, not only do we believe in prevenient grace and we believe that, that God works in advance of us and that we have to trust in Jesus to be saved and that we have to repent have, have you ever heard the phrase eternal security? Anybody ever heard that phrase? Um, have you ever heard this statement that Nazarenes believe that you can lose your salvation? That Meaning that, that after you become a Christian, you can somehow lose it? Have you ever heard that? How many of you ever heard that before? Okay, we, we do believe in this concept that we can walk away from Christ, and it's called eternal security. And so I'm going to show you a quick video pastor named Scott Daniels is going to share with you, and then I'm going to kind of uh, finish it up, and then we're going to do two others. So we're going to do one on baptism. We're also going to do one on sanctification. So if I forget to introduce them, you'll see them. So here is uh, Pastor Scott Daniels on eternal, uh, eternal security. Hi, I'm Scott Daniels. I pastor here in California. When I'm teaching membership classes, oftentimes people have questions about salvation. In particular, the question 
called eternal security. Uh, the question usually gets phrased this way. Do Nazarenes believe that people can lose their salvation? That's a really great question and sort of a complicated one, but the answer is really pretty simple. Uh, sometimes we think about God as a judge who looks at our life and determines whether we get to go to heaven or not. You see, there are a couple of ways of thinking about God. Sometimes we think about God as a judge, but more often than not, we like to think of God as an, a being with whom we are in relationship. For God invites us into relationship. In fact, the biblical metaphor that's used most often for God is that he is a lover who longs for us to be in relationship with him, or he is a father who longs for his children to love him and walk with him. And because of that, because of that relational nature that Wesleyans emphasize in salvation, relationships are two-way streets. Uh, we never have to worry is God going to walk away from us? But, but sometimes we have to ask this question, is it possible for us to walk out of relationship with God? And because of that relational nature, then Wesleyan Christians oftentimes emphasize that like the prodigal son, there are times when someone who has been home can say to God, I'm gonna take my inheritance and go my own way. And that God, brokenhearted, allows his covenantal partners to walk out of that relationship with him. Now, I, I wanna say, there is a danger there. Sometimes when we talk about that relational nature, we can get kind of paranoid. Uh, we can start taking our pulse and wonder, am I in relationship with God? Am I out of relationship with God? Is there something that is gonna throw me out of relationship with God? I wanna say very clearly, we believe that God's grace is as vast as this ocean behind me. That we never have to worry about God throwing us out of relationship. The question is really ours. And John Wesley believed that we could live each day with the assurance of our salvation. In fact, sometimes when people ask me the question, can I lose my salvation, I, I get a little tickled. I, I, it's almost like asking, where did I put my cell phone? I lose my cell phone all the time. Where is it? Where is it? We can't think of our salvation that way as though we can somehow lose it or set it aside. But we can live, Wesley says, with the assurance that each day we know that we belong to God and that he belongs to us. And that's the kind of life, the relational life with God that we want to emphasize. Again, this is an important question. And I believe that in some ways God is a judge who looks at our life through grace and, and judges us righteous before him, not because of our own works, but because of his grace. But most importantly, God is a father who wants to walk in relationship with his children. And because of that, we need every day to respond to his grace and to walk in relationship with him. So I wanna say again that the question about our salvation is an important one, but I wanna emphasize that we do believe that God is in some ways a judge, but he has judged our lives righteous through the grace and mercy of Christ. But most importantly, God invites us into relationship with him. We never have to worry if God is going somewhere but we always want to daily walk in the assurance that we are in relationship with him and spend each day in the light of his love, walking in his grace, living as his children. May God bless you. Kind of the most important part of, of what Scott shared with us and this concept is that like in any relationship, we can, we can walk out of relationship. You, if you're married, you can walk out, you can fall in love with someone, get married, and fall out of love, and walk out of relationship with them as well. But we do believe that God is so gracious and so, so forgiving that if you, if you know someone that you think has walked away from the Lord, 
God's grace is so quick to forgive them again. And I want you to understand something. If people in your life have seemed to walk away from God, this is such an intimate, personal relationship that we have with Him. Only they know. It is not up to us to look at our loved ones or look at people that we know and say, wow, they're not walking with the Lord, so they must not be saved anymore. We don't take the pulse of others in regard to their faith. It's a personal choice. It's a personal decision. And only Christ himself knows where you are and where I am and where others are. And so this is a deeply personal thing. But we do need to emphasize that um, we do believe that you can disown God. You can disavow God and walk away. And the, con- the concept would then be, well, is my salvation in jeopardy? Well, that's between you and Jesus. That's between you and Jesus. But just like the prodigal when he came home and the father was waiting for him, Jesus is just waiting to bring those people right back into relationship with him. We talk in the Church of the Nazarene about uh, being justified in Christ. Have you heard that term before, being justified in Christ? I want to highlight that a little bit because in Christ, when we accept Christ, we get to, the first thing that happens is that we are forgiven of our sins and then we are justified. We experience justification in our life. What justification means is that justification means that God accepts us just as if we had never sinned before. That God does in us and for us what we could never do for ourselves. Wipe the slate clean. And Jesus does that for us. Now justification, it begins the moment we turn to Christ and we continue to be justified in Christ as we continue to live and walk with Him. As we work to follow Him and be obedient to Him, we walk in love and, and, and faith in Him, we are continually justified in our walk. Now, uh, article of faith, oh, my screen's covered. Oh, it's number 10. We believe that after being born anew, we need the fullness of God's Spirit in our hearts. And when we make a complete commitment to Him, he cleanses our, cleanses us, uh, our spirit, fills us with perfect love, and gives us the power to live an obedient life and victoriously. And we call that in the Church of the Nazarene sanctification. Now, hold on to that word for a minute because at the end, I'm going to go back to sanctification. And that is a, a, a unique term, a unique theology for all Wesleyan holiness churches, sanctification. Article of faith number 11 is that the church is the body of Christ carrying on his mission through the power of the Holy Spirit. That You and I together are the church along with all kinds of others. Um, So all the churches that were infested by squirrels this week, they're all part of our brotherhood. They're all part of our, our family. And we all work together to bring the gospel and the news of good and the good news of Jesus to everyone that God gives us an opportunity to. Article faith number 12 is baptism. And we believe in baptism in the Church of the Nazarene. We do it in many different forms. But we believe that one of the first things that you should do when you put your faith in Jesus is get baptized. And we believe it's a public proclamation of faith. You're telling the world what God has done within you. Now, I want to share a quick video uh, from a pastor named David Sharps. And he's going to kind of expound on baptism a little bit more. Hi, my name is Dave Sharps, a pastor in Chandler, Arizona. We're glad you're exploring membership in the Church of the Nazarene. The Nazarene Church has two different sacraments. 
One's the Lord's Supper, which we'll talk about in a later segment, and the other is baptism, which we want to take a moment just to give you some instruction about right now. Believer's baptism is what we call a sacrament of initiation in the church. It says, first of all, that we're cleansed. That's why water is used. It also notes that we're marked. That is, we're a part of the community of faith that's following after Jesus Christ. Now, it's not the baptism that saves you, though some other denominations may teach that. We believe it's an outward sign of what's taking place on the inside of your life. Baptism's a lot like a wedding ring. It's an outward sign of the covenant that you've made in your heart. So when you're being baptized, people are there. They observe what's happening publicly. And many times, at least in the church where I pastor, when people have been baptized, after the baptism is over, people just break out in spontaneous applause, remembering the time that they encountered the grace of God in their lives, and also applauding and welcoming those that now are part of the community of faith that they enjoy as well. And really, when you're being baptized, there are three different deposits that are taking place. First of all, the Spirit of God is being deposited into the life of the believer. Christ is coming into your heart. He's gonna make a transformational difference in your life. The second deposit is that you're then being deposited into the life of the church. The church is receiving your, your gifts and your graces and your parts in ministry. And you then, as a part of that community of faith, are offering them accountability, discipleship, and a place to connect and a place to gather and to learn and to grow. But the other thing that's exciting is the third deposit, that we are being deposited as the body of Christ into the community around us to go out and be the representation, the hands and the feet of Jesus Christ, to fulfill the mission to which God's called us to be salt and to be light in our world. In Acts chapter 2, the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost has preached an incredible message and the Holy Spirit's really fallen. His word to them is this, each of you must turn from your sins and turn to God and be baptized. He's inviting them to come and be a part of the body of Christ. We go on into Acts chapter two and we see that they gathered together on a daily basis. They cared for each other. They cared for the community around them. And the word says then they went out. What was deposited in them as they deposited in each other was then deposited out into their world. And the word of God says they added to their number daily those who were being saved. It's an incredible opportunity. We hope again, if you've not yet been baptized, that you'll speak to your pastor about a baptismal ceremony and a chance to testify before the church about your faith in Jesus Christ, to let the church affirm you as a part of the family of God, and then be a part of the great movement of the kingdom of God to bring the missional life of Jesus Christ to a world, to be the salt and the light where God calls you to be. May God bless you. Sometimes when I teach a 101 class or a membership class, people ask me questions about baptism. And one question that comes up occasionally is a question about the mode of baptism or how people are being baptized in the church. In the Wesleyan spirit in the Church of the Nazarene, we allow for various modes, in fact, three specific modes of baptism that we discuss and think about in the church. The first one is called sprinkling. It's one that's not all that frequently in the scripture, but we hear in like Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22, that your hearts would be sprinkled to cleanse you from a guilty conscience. That's kind of the thinking that we're talking about here, that when you're baptized, that your heart's being cleansed and sprinkled from the guilt of your sin. Most don't do sprinkling or provide that mode of baptism much anymore. In fact, many would say, historians would say that that mode of baptism didn't start happening really until about the 12th century. 
and many consider it also maybe just a variation on pouring, which is another mode of baptism that we'll talk about in just a minute. The second and most frequently used form of baptism in evangelical churches is immersion. In Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul talks about being buried with Christ in baptism. That symbolism, when I think about it, makes me think as I stand with candidates in the baptismal pool and I prepare to put them under the water, that they're being buried with Christ in baptism. One moment they're standing there and their hair's fine and their makeup looks good and then they're put under the water. And when they come up out of those waters that stand for the cleansing, the washing away of their sin, then everything's changed. Everything's become new. Their hair's flat and maybe their makeup's running and they're spewing water somewhere. But when I think about that wonderful symbolism, I think about what it means to be buried with Christ in baptism. Now some debate the word baptizo. Some say that means to be submerged or immersed. And in some portions of scripture, that's exactly how in the context what that word means. But in other places, it, is also, it also can mean to be washed. And so we don't insist on immersion as the only mode of baptism. And there's another mode, and that's pouring that I mentioned a moment ago. Now some people think pouring has the greatest symbolism for what it means to be baptized. That is, the Holy Spirit being poured out upon his people. The prophet Joel talked about the Holy Spirit being poured out. Jesus himself said, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait until the gift of the Father is, comes that has been promised, which you have heard me speak about, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter two, the word of God says, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. Symbolically, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit is really one of the more descriptive metaphors for being baptized or cleansed. Historically, the Roman Catholic Church, the oldest Christian denomination, has used pouring as their mode of baptism for centuries. So whether you want to be sprinkled to be cleansed in that way, whether you want to be buried with Christ in baptism in the form of immersion as we've seen it, or whether you want to have it poured over you as representing the cleansing of the Holy Spirit, let me just suggest to you that you go to your pastor, and whatever preferred mode is at your church, that you experience that cleansing, life-giving grace of God, and then stand before your congregation and that as the waters pour over you or sprinkle over you or you find yourself submerged in the baptismal pool, that you stand to testify to the grace and the mercy of God in your life as you're engaged in becoming a part of that community of faith that walks in love together and representing and touching the world around us. May God make it so for each and every one. I wanted to touch on just two more things in regards to baptism. Um, I think it's, number one, I think it's the most significant thing that you can do in your life as a brand new believer. I think it just, it, it, there's something about uh, being baptized that sets you on the, uh, just a great path with the Lord. Um, also, I wanted to encourage you, um, if, you've, if you've been baptized in the past and you've drifted away from the Lord and, and God has redirected you or brought you back, that it's not a bad idea to come and get baptized again to make a public proclamation of what God is doing in you. And I would also like to encourage you that have children or young people in your family, especially if you have granddaughters, grandsons, nieces, nephews, who may 
have been born or grown up in other faiths, whether it be Catholic or Lutheran or more Reformed. Sometimes, in fact, in the Lutheran Church, um, more uh, uh, on they will baptize infants. That's like the first thing that people do. You know, it's amazing how many, when we lived in South Dakota, there was this huge Lutheran uh, influence. And if grandma was a Lutheran and somebody had a baby, you immediately went to the Lutheran church and got your child baptized um, because they believe, it, they believe it saves them, it believes it protects them until you know, if something were to happen to the child before they were able to come to faith in Jesus. And, and really... In our church, what we believe is that Christ's death atones for people who have yet not believed. So anyways, that's a whole other teaching. But if you have a grandson or a granddaughter that has been baptized in the Lutheran church, Catholic church, some other faith, and they're like, they, they, got, they went to church camp or they're going to a youth group and God is doing a work in their lives and they, they're like, I want to get baptized. And grandma and grandpa are like, you can't get baptized. You were baptized as, as a baby in the Lutheran church. Um, how I help families go through that process, because I really strongly encourage families to allow a, a student or a child to be baptized when they have made a, uh, a decision to follow Jesus in their lives. And how I always help families through that is I always tell them, especially if, if you have the Lutheran grandma in your family, is what you did, what you guys did as a family when you baptized the baby as an infant, what you did was you began the process of what God has now fulfilled in their life. So when they're getting baptized, they're not diminishing what you did. They're finishing what you began. That work that you began in them is now coming to another milestone in their lives. So be open to that. So if you have family or friends uh, that are in that position, um, that's a, a good way to approach it. Article of faith number 13 is we, we do believe in the Lord's Supper. We believe in communion. In fact, next Sunday morning, we will have communion together as a family, as a church family. Uh, number uh, 14 is that God can heal. We always pray for healing, but we also believe that God can heal through medical science. And so um, we believe that God can heal through medical science, and we also got, believe that God heals divinely, which for us that means if, if wise, sound medical a- attention has been given to you about a cancer diagnosis, we encourage you to take that treatment. We encourage you to follow through with the doctor what the doctors say. There was, recently, there was a little bit of a, a, a dust-up in regard to this article of faith on the vaccine mandates because there were some that says, well, if I don't want the vaccine because my body's a holy temple and I don't want to take anything in that I shouldn't. And then there was some, even Nazarenes, that were saying, well, if we believe in medical science and if the vaccine is medical science and it can heal you, then we should take it because that's what our article of faith says. Or as a church, as a denomination, we, we were directed, we were given uh, direction that the vaccine is not necessarily, we're not just lumping that in with medical science. Because in all things, through prayer, counsel, with your medical doctor and your pastor and your church, you make those decisions based on who you are and your medical history and all those kind of things. So don't let any Nazarene tell you, well, you got to get, bab- bab- get vaccinated because the article of faith, faith says we believe in medical science. Don't, don't go down that rabbit hole. We also believe that Jesus is coming again, that Jesus will return and he will reconcile the world to his church. And then article of faith number 16, we believe that everyone will face the judgment of God and its rewards and punishments, that we will all give an account in front of the Lord Jesus for our lives. 
So now those are our 16 articles of faith. There's a lot of information. I am going to break these down in a sermon series a little later. But I want to talk, I want to backtrack and go back to this word sanctification, and this thought process of sanctification. What is sanctification? It's a, it's a, uh, it is a foundational uh, article of faith for us. It is foundational for most Wesleyan churches. Whoops, come on. Did it again. I didn't put the slide there. Hey, uh, Gary, can you... By now, you've probably heard that the Church of the Nazarene is what we call a holiness church. Of course, we, in our core values, call we're go, ourselves We're going to let J.K. Warwick tell us about sanctification. And that we stand in the long line of traditional Christian faith. Just start it again. And more specifically, we're an evangelical church. And that's to say, at least in part this, that we believe in a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, and we embrace the authority and inspiration of Scripture. But even more particularly, we're often called a holiness church. In fact, that's, that's what we call ourselves. We're a, a holiness church. We, we put great emphasis on the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. In fact, the doctrine of entire sanctification or Christian holiness really is the distinctive doctrine of the Church of the Nazarene. It's what sets us apart. And our belief in this life of holy living is based in Scripture. It's not simply a theological tradition with us, but it comes from the mandate of God Himself. When He called the people of Israel and delivered them out of their bondage in Egypt, He called them to be a holy people. And all through the Old Testament, that phrase is repeated, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And even in the New Testament, the same call is set forth to people. Well, this matter of holiness is uh, sometimes confusing and it seems to be a theological tradition outside the reach of ordinary people like me and you, but really it's, it's quite simple. To be a holy person is to be completely surrendered to the will and purpose of God. To be a holy person is to be yielded to the will and purpose of God. To be a holy person is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It's to embrace his teachings. It's to allow him to live his life in and through us. In fact, the Apostle Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament, said in Galatians chapter 2, he's talking about his own life, and he said, I've been crucified with Christ. And it's kind of like he's reasoning out loud. I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. But the life that I now live in the flesh or in the body, I live by the power of Christ who lives in me. So it's not that I'm living, it's Christ who lives in me. And uh, this new life in Christ, this deeper life in Christ, this is what we mean by holiness. Holiness is so important to us and this doctrine and experience of entire sanctification is so important to us that we have an article of faith, Christian holiness and entire sanctification. Well, let me, let me explain to you a little more personally what that might mean to each one of us. When we become a Christian, suddenly we find ourselves liking things we didn't like and not liking things that we used to like. Uh, the Bible talks about anyone being in Christ being a new creature, and that's part of that. We have new desires and new appetites and new longings. And yet when we start following after those new longings and new appetites, suddenly 
we often find within us something pulling us in the other direction, something wanting to go back to an old way of living or another lifestyle. So what do we do with that? Well, some people say you just live with the tension and manage this tendency to go back. But we believe the scripture teaches that there's something better for us than that. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the Bible says that God has not called us to uncleanness, but unto holiness. And the scripture says that this is the will of God, even your sanctification. And that teaching comes in the context of some teaching about sexual morality and immorality. And that we shouldn't be uh, drawn into practices that are contrary to the character of Christ himself. So, so what's our hope? What's the remedy? Well, the remedy really is quite simply this, that we just surrender ourselves as believers to the full control of the Lord Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. And God promises that he'll do two things for us, at least two things for us when we make that surrender of our lives. First of all, he will cleanse us of our selfishness and self-centeredness and of, of whatever it is, and theologians have a lot of terms, the carnal mind, the, the old man, the man of sin, the person of sin, but that he'll cleanse us of everything that would pull us away from God, from the in, inside out. He'll cleanse our hearts and he'll fill us with the Holy Spirit in a way that's, that's more complete than when we were converted. And it's that indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit that enables us then to fully follow the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have to go back to the old way of life. The Christian life really is an upward trail. When we're converted, we begin to move upward and we come to the place of full surrender. And we're empowered then to love God with all of our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength and our neighbor as ourselves. And we find ourselves, well, sometimes I describe it this way. We, we fall into the ocean of God's love and lose track of ourselves. And we become true servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can't do this on our own, obviously. So in closing out his letter in 1 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you through and through, or entirely or completely, so that your whole body and soul and spirit might be preserved until the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the next verse he says, faithful is he who calls you because he will do it. So we can't do this on our own. That's why this element of surrender is so critical. We just have to let go of ourselves and give ourselves completely to God. As you continue your walk with the Lord, you're gonna come up to the place where you're called on by God the Holy Spirit to make the surrender. And I encourage you, when the Holy Spirit begins to talk to you about this, simply say yes to God. I heard a college chaplain put it this way, a student was praying and having difficulty understand all the languages about holiness and everything that it might mean. And he said to that student, if I could just rip your heart open, and look inside your heart, would I find an eternal yes or an eternal no to God? And that student said, well, you'd, you'd find an everlasting yes. And that college chaplain said, then stop worrying about it. When you've said an everlasting eternal yes to God, then God the Holy Spirit will do the rest.
I pray that you'll experience the fullness of God's grace in your life and enjoy the thrill of walking this trail of the holy life and the journey that God opens to us when we surrender to him. So sanctification is what, is what Christ does in us when we choose, when we respond to him and choose to surrender our lives to him, to kind of give in. Sanctification is what God does in us through the finished work of Christ and the Holy Spirit. So we believe in initial sanctification. That's when you're saved. And entire sanctification is when you come to this second, second place of grace where you sense that God is calling you to more, that, that you're ready to make that eternal yes rather than still wrestle with you, his yes and your yeses. And that's that, that moment of entire sanctification. So initial sanctification, it's, uh, or new birth, it begins the moment that you're saved and the moment that you're justified. And then I, entire sanctification is a distinctive moment in the process or a second stage, a second work in grace. Entire sanctification becomes a reality as we willfully choose to consecrate our, our entire life to the will and purposes of God. Now, uh, and then sanctification will lead us to ultimately glorification. And glorification in our church is when you pass from this life and you get to heaven, that's when you are glorified. Now, I have, um, I have a couple of slides that are going to kind of give you, uh, hopefully, a little bit more of a practical look at, at sanctification. But essentially, what the core of the message is, is don't stop at the beginning of your relationship with Jesus. Keep growing and going. And then I have a very non-scientific uh, line graph of what sanctification is all about. Um, and it's centered in Romans 8, which I'm going to share with you in just a minute. But so essentially, the bottom line is, is the baseline of our lives. And then you see that little squiggly line there. So justification is what happens in us when our life begins with Jesus. You accept Jesus. And then when you accept Jesus, you begin this, this kind of up and down, topsy-turvy line of walking and growing in grace. Grace. Well, sanctification is a moment along that journey when you're like, wait a minute, there's got to be more. I can't keep going back and forth in this. I've got, and you're drawn to surrendering all. You're just drawn to, I got to give in. I, it's got to be either God's way or, or, or I got to get out of this because I can't continue to wrestle with my will and his will all the time. You come to this place where you're like, I've I just, I need to surrender, and that's sanctification, and then glorification is the end when life begins in heaven. Here's another uh, little way that somebody described it to me at some point. Um, I've got these big, crazy keys that don't open anything, but they're, they're a great illustration. Somebody once told me that the sanctified life is like the keychain, and all of you, if you pulled your keys out right now, you got all kinds of keys. Some house keys, some car keys, you know, who knows what else you got on your key ring. I bet you some of us, if we took a pull, you'd probably have keys on your key ring that you don't even know what they're for. But somebody described sanctification as giving God the keys to your life. He gets the keys to everything. Every angle, every option, every decision, every choice, every vehicle, every dollar, everything, you give God the keys. And if you've ever been a parent and handed your children their car keys, you know how scary that can be. And so sanctification is that same kind of commitment 
we're saying, God, I'm giving you the keys. Giving you the keys to every area of my life. I'm going to let you lead. I'm going to let you drive. I'm going to let you be the one that takes care of everything. Another uh, illustration for sanctification is like your home. All of us, we have a house. And, um, and when we invite Jesus in, we invite him into the home. We invite him into our lives. Now, every one of us in our houses, we have rooms that we love to show our guests, right? But some of us have a room or a closet where we don't want to show our guests. In fact, that's the one where when people are coming over, you shove all of everything else into, and then you slowly back, and you use your butt to shut the door, and you latch it, and you hope and you pray that somebody doesn't mistake that door for the bathroom, because if they open it, they're going to get killed by everything that falls out on them. And so the house kind of illustration is we give Jesus access to the entire house. He can go in every closet, he can go in every drawer. He can go under the mattress. He can be in every aspect of our life. Sanctification means that you have given the Lord Jesus access to every single area of your life. Now, I'll share briefly kind of my testimony of sanctification. We'll wrap up. I know we're running a little late today. Um, so for me, sanctification was this moment in my life I, i'd been saved i've been walking with the lord it'd been a few months and and i just kind of came to this place where i was like there's got to be something more to this relationship and I, I kind of i kind of um i kind of liken it to this have you ever been driving on a rural road and you're listening to the radio and 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 you're enjoying the the, the songs that are playing and you're singing along and things are good but all of a sudden you get to a place where you, you start to lose that signal. It, it gets a little fuzzy. It comes in and out. Well, I kind of got into this place with God. I was saved. I was walking with Him. I was learning. I was growing. But I, I kind of got to this place where sometimes I was hearing Him clearly. Sometimes I wasn't. Sometimes, you know, I, 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 was, I had a hard time. And th when, when the static came, it was when I was wrestling with something He was asking me to do, and I wasn't quite ready to do that. And so I was kind of hearing this this just out of signal. Well, for me, uh, it was a Sunday night service and I responded to a pastor asking me or asked the congregation if they wanted to surrender all, give everything of their life to God uh, to be sanctified. And so I felt the pull of the Holy Spirit in my life. I felt God pulling me down to the altar. You got to do something with this. There's got to be something more. There's more to this relationship. So I went to the altar that night and this old guy came down and he knelt down beside me, a guy named Harold Olson, a uh, beautiful man. And he asked me, he said, son, what are you doing down here? And I said, what the pastor's talking about, this whole heart surrender, this not having to wrestle with things. I just want that. And old Harold, he helped me pray through this. And what the best kind of description for me was all of a sudden the, the dial was tuned in perfectly to God's voice. I, I heard him clearly. And here's the thing, with that, with that dial tuned in perfectly, even when I disagree with him, even when I kind of want my own way, I hear him clearly. I mean, I got I to gotta say, yeah, God, you might know best, but I really want that. God, I, you know, yeah. You know, if you've ever bought a boat and you really knew you shouldn't have bought the boat, if you're sanctified, you hear God saying, don't buy the boat. I mean, if you ever found yourself in a mess, and you're sanctified, you knew what kind of mess you were getting into before you got into it. 
There was no excuse. Well, I just didn't know it was going to end up like this. That's what a sanctified believer's heart is like. You just know. You know when you jump into that what the consequences are going to be, what the significance of that is going to be. And on the, on the other hand, when God says, I want you to do this, I want you to jump, I want you to run, I want you to go here, and you just say yes, because without even thinking about it, without even, I mean, I'm a planner and a preparer. If you just say yes to God, and you don't have the plan or the preparation, that's what a sanctified believer does, because they just trust God is going to work it out along the way. And they clearly hear God move. Now back to Romans. And this is how we're going to close today. Romans 28 says, And we know that in all things God works for the, good, for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those who God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. This is that outline of that relationship, that progress with, the, with God. Then verse 31 says, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37 says, no. In all these things we are more than conquerors, through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now this scripture is a statement, it's a bold faith statement of who we are in Christ and who God is in our lives. And our articles of faith weave seamlessly through them to help us live a victorious life. That's why they're so important to us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that uh, the beauty of who you are is that you have this plan and a purpose for our lives and you have this, this desire to be in relationship with us. You give us this beautiful trinity, this, 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 this presence of you in our lives. God the Father who created us, who is all-knowing, who is sovereign over everything. Your son, Jesus, who came to make a way back for each and every one of us, who now sits at your right hand in heaven and intercedes on our behalf. This gift of the Holy Spirit, which draws us to you, which helps us to find salvation in Christ, and then indwells in us and leads us and guides us in, in, in the paths that you lay in front of us, who then desperately draws us to another moment, a second work of grace in our lives where we're like, I'm all in, God. I've pushed it all in. I'm yours. I'm whole heart surrendered. And that second work of the Spirit of God makes an additional 
deposit fills us to where we are overflowing so that literally God if if, if we if we live in it if we rest in it, if we dwell in that place there is very little room for anything other than you not meaning that we don't have activities or other things that we love and desire but all of those are blessings and are they, they are intertwined in our life with you and God in this working together the spirit carries those requests and those prayers to Jesus who sits at the right hand and then you have a conversation with our father and says hey this is what's on Scott's heart this is what he's desiring this is what he's troubled with how shall we respond and Jesus you respond by giving us direction and wisdom and guidance through the Holy Spirit and when we receive it and when we obey to it obey it God you make everything right you take a broken world and you make it whole when we as a church when we focus on what we believe those foundational things they're important because they give us the foundation of living and and working and and serving you in our world help us to be reminded of those so we know that number one we're part of something bigger we're not alone and we have a strong foundation to build upon, to serve upon, and to, to work upon. And may you receive the honor and, the, and all the glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, God bless you. We will see you next week. We're going to talk about how to live as Christians.